Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, you can. Uh, not sure if you were able to tune in last week. Last week, obviously, we couldn't gather here in this building. We went Zoom online. Uh, we looked at the first part of this chapter there, and we talked specifically about the value of a timely I love you. Right? And so if you caught us last week, it was Valentine's Day. I thought it made sense. Hey, the value of a timely I love you and how there's moments in our, in, in our lives that, that hearing those words mean more than other moments. And we know this. We, we kind of see this at different times. You're like, hey, you can, roll that, you can roll that slogan right off your lips at any time. And you'd be like, hey, I love you, babe, love you, babe, love you, babe. But in those moments of pain, in those moments of desperation, you can hear it. And it has a way of penetrating our soul in ways that other times don't. And so we talked about that. How in the middle of our weakness, uh, verse 6, in the middle of our sinfulness and our unwillingness to come to Jesus in and of our own self, God came with a very, very timely I love you and the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the life we could not live and to die the death we were supposed to die that we could be reconciled with him. And so we talked about that last week, and I want to jump back into that again this week to go a little bit further and talk specifically about the fruit of having that assurance. Okay, so we're talking about the fruit of the assurance of God's love, where you stand before a holy God, holy and righteous God today. Uh, the value, uh, the, the difference that it makes moving from, hey, I'm pretty sure about where I stand today, to being, hey, I am absolutely certain because of the truth of God's word, what he's done on my behalf, here is the relationship, here is the way that we stand, that I stand today before this holy God. I don't know if you guys caught the uh, Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. How many of you guys watched that? You actually took the time to watch it. I, I was actually impressed. I thought that it was actually a pretty strong year for the commercials. Anybody else kind of think that it was like, okay, these were, these were pretty good. Maybe you had a lot more time at home to think about it and get creative. But um, I thought they were pretty strong. My favorite one was the Tracy Morgan one. Uh, I think it was Rocket Mortgage or something. You guys remember this one at all? Uh, the family, I'm going to roll a clip of this in here in just a second, but the family's like in the home and they're going, hey, it's a brand new home. They're like, uh, babe, I'm pretty sure we can afford this thing. And then, of course, Tracy Morgan's in a tub and he's like, pretty sure. You could be absolutely sure uh, with Rocket Mortgage and all these other kinds of things. But, uh, Caitlin, would you mind rolling that real quick? And I promise you this will be brief, but I think it's funny, so... Can we even afford this house? I'm pretty sure we can. Pretty sure. With Rocket Mortgage, you can be certain. Not pretty sure. What's Sorry the difference? The Let me show you. I'm pretty sure these aren't poisonous. I'm pretty sure these are parachutes. Mine has a sandwich. That's mine. Pretty sure you do not run. I'm pretty sure you can take Batista down. You're all. Okay, I'm pretty sure this is trending. I'm pretty sure these hornets aren't the murdering type. I'm pretty sure we can make it. Certain's better. Let's go with certain. All Good right. choice. <laughs> all right, you can all get your mortgages with Rocket Mortgage. I love that. Wasn't that a good one, though? Like, I was right about that. Like, I, I thought that was absolutely incredible. But, like, there's a massive difference between pretty sure and sure, right? And when you're a pastor and you're watching commercials, you're thinking, okay, you, you see things a little bit differently. You're like, oh, that's an intro right there. <laughs> like, like, that'll preach right there, right? And so, uh, anyway, my apologies for that. But it, I just think, you know, that there's, this is exactly what Paul is going to be getting into in the text today. He's saying, hey, church, 
hey, believer, like there's a massive difference between being pretty sure about where you stand with God and how you line up with him today and being absolutely certain of what he's done on your behalf. And so I want to jump into that today. Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, if you're joining us in this series, here's what is going on here. He's, this is the Apostle Paul actually writing a letter to the first century church in Rome. And so this is what he's doing. The entire thing is all about the gospel. And what he's doing is he's uniting a, a church that's very diverse. Uh, we got Jews and you got Gentiles, religious and irreligious. They're coming together about 17 years after the resurrection. And there's all these tensions that are going on inside of the church, these differences between them. And he's saying, hey, you guys can come together and be unified around the gospel, the good news of the victory that's been won for us in Jesus Christ. It's a whole point of this letter. It's why we wanted to come back to it back in September, right in the middle of this very volatile time in our world, the middle of 2020 and, and things going on in our country that were just absolutely crazy and stuff. We wanted to be a church deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ during these shaking times. And so this is what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, you could be united in this thing all around the gospel of Jesus. And so the first couple chapters are him laying out essentially the bad news of the gospel, which is that, hey, sin is a massive problem in the world. It's what separated us from God. It's not only them out there, the irreligious people outside of these walls. Chapter 2, he holds up this mirror in front of the religious person. He's like, hey, this is you too, bro. This is you too, sister in Christ. Like, this is you. This is in you. Like, don't get so cocky and arrogant and thinking, hey, it's just them out there that's broken. This is inside of you too. And so he gets to the good news in chapter 3, and I love this. He turns the page a little bit, but he essentially says this. Hey, even though there's none of us who are righteous, not even one, he says in chapter 3, verse 10. Even though that, that is the designation that we all have before a holy God. None who are righteous, not even one. The good news of the gospel is this. The righteousness of God is still available to you and to me through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. In other words, like this righteousness you've never been able to walk in yourself, it is available as a gift to you who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine faith. And so he says, this is why there's no boasting. There should be no boasting among believers, right? This is why there should be no self-righteousness. It's not how it always plays out or anything. But like, this is why there should be no boasting for the believer. Like, you haven't done anything to earn your right standing before God. It's been gifted to you. All you did is look upon Jesus, come to him in genuine faith saying, I believe you are who you say that you are. And I'm receiving this gift of righteousness, which you are offering to me. And so there's no room for boasting. So chapter 4, he gets in and he breaks down the anatomy of faith. This is what we talked about a couple weeks back, and he breaks it down. And he's like, okay, what is the saving faith? He's like, okay, saving faith is essentially this. It is a transfer of trust that takes place, whereby you move from standing on your own two feet of self-righteousness or self-justification uh, before God, saying, hey, this is, I'm standing on my own strength to whereby you transition that, that there's a transfer of trust that takes place, and I'm moving from that to fully sitting down and resting as you now are in your chairs right there. I'm resting completely in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a substitute for me. And he says, if that has taken place, that transfer of trust has taken place, man, you could be assured of the, the, the righteousness of God has been given to you, and you stand before him justified, holy, and complete. And so chapter 5 is a continuation of that, and he gets into this, and he's kind of showing us, here's what's at stake. Here are the implications of such a stance before a holy God. And so he begins in verse 1, and he says this, therefore, therefore, every time you see this in the scriptures, you circle it, you look back, and you say, okay, what's this therefore, right? And we know this in Bible, you circle it, and you kind of look back and say, in light of everything that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, he says, since we have peace with him, um, he says, since we have, where am I? Since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what we talked about a little bit last week, if you caught us on Zoom or anything like that. We said, like, in Christ, there's no longer any hostility between you and the Father, right? That's not the disposition between you and God, our loving Heavenly Father. There's no more wrath against sin. It has all been satisfied. He is the propitiation for our sin, meaning the just wrath of God against sin has now been satisfied because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we talk about wrath of God, and, and it seems to kind of contradict how we think about him. We say, okay, we say things like, okay, um, God is a God of love. God is loving. It's absolutely true. But we, we see this all play out because we understand that God is a lot more than just one quality, one attribute. We know that he's also just. We also know that he's perfectly merciful. Uh, we know that he's transcendent. He's outside of time. He's supernatural. We also know that he's perfectly holy. And so the way this all plays out is like, yes, he's a God of love, but he's also holy and he's also perfectly just. Because he's holy, sin is problematic in our relationship with him. Holy can have nothing to do with unholy. Because he's just, um, sin has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. Because the wages of sin is death. There has to be the shedding of blood. But because God is also love, God in his infinite love sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the life we could not live, die the death we were supposed to die, that we may come to him in faith and live with him now and for all of eternity, that we may have peace with him now and always. And so what he's saying right here is the reason you and I are able to experience the peace of God today. We pray for it and say, God, give me your peace today. Give me peace of mind. Give me peace in my soul. Give me peace in my life. The reason you and I are able to walk in the peace of God today is because peace with him has already been made through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's an important nuance that we hold on to today. Because we're not talking about just flippant hope here. We're not talking about anything like that. It's an important designation to understand. When you cry out for the peace of God today, the reason you're able to do that is because God in history has reached out to you and to me in his infinite love, and he has made peace between us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so he, so he builds on this. In verse 2, he says, Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, you and I have a brand new designation. We have a favor with God that we didn't otherwise have because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And again, there is a brand new disposition between you and the Father that is going to play into our experiences today. I've told you this story before, I think, but... Um, but uh, the first time I ever met Kat's dad, I don't know if you guys have that in-law, uh, that father-in-law somewhere around you that is a little intimidating and, and terrifying to be around. Like, that, was, that was Kat's dad, Ron, and uh, he was a hunter. He had like, everything dead on the walls you can imagine, and you know, an arsenal that could like, arm a militia or something. Like, it, was, it was a little terrifying and intimidating the first time I went over to his house. But I'll never forget knocking on the door, and his, her mom answers the door, and, and she's like, oh, it's so nice to meet you, and she's so sweet and kind and everything. And then all of a sudden, her dad just walks in, and he comes barely right there, and he goes, Aaron, follow me. And he turns and just walks off, and he just leaves. And I'm sitting there at the door, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be one of these meetings. Like, I'm terrified and everything. And so we go out to the patio, and, and uh, I'm not kidding. Like, two minutes later, he asked me my story, and I'm telling him a little bit of my testimony and everything. And, and I'm not, four minutes after that, he's telling me his story. And this guy who owns, like, every gun in the world is, like, weeping over what God's done in his life, and he's telling me his story, and we have this connection and everything, and, and we hug it. I mean, it was just awesome, awesome time. Like, I'm telling you, like, our relationship changed dramatically that day when I realized that, that there was a new disposition between us, that I actually had favor with my father-in-law. 
Like I came to him and I wasn't terrified to go over to her house. I wasn't afraid of walking in the door. I wasn't always questioning, okay, where do I stand with you or anything like that? And it's exactly what Paul's saying right here. He's saying, believer, I want you to understand you have favor with God. There is a brand new disposition at play that you're going to need to understand in the difficult times of life when it feels like he's angry, it feels like he's wrathful, it feels like his back is turned towards you. There's a brand new different disposition that you need to be assured of today. And so this is what he's getting at right here. He continues in this and he says, okay, as a result of having this peace with God the Father, as a result of having this favor, he says, you and I can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the implications. There's a brand new disposition between you and the Father. You have peace with him. You have his favor. Therefore, as a result of that, there's a very, very tangible rejoicing that can take place inside of your soul because of your future hope. This is what he's saying. Like This is different than what it would be like if you were simply pretty sure of where you stand with him. Right, pretty sure it's going to be living in fear. Pretty sure it's going to be living in anxiety, kind of going, okay, I don't know how you're feeling today. I'm not sure if that, 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 that assurance, that, that favor that we had in the beginning is continuing past that fight that we had or whatever it may be. Like, like, like there's a pretty sure and there's an absolutely sure. And then there's a massive difference between these two things. He's saying that there is a joy you can grab hold of right now that can fill your soul and come out and overflow into this authentic experience of joy. That's what it means to rejoice. It's to be filled with this joy and this satisfaction that comes from the assurance that you have with him, that it comes out in this expression of joy. That's what it means right here. It is an honest and authentic experience of worship and joy. And what he's saying is you can have this as you fixate on the assurance of future glory. As you sit here and you, can, and you know that this is happening one day, you know how the story ends. It's what Revelation talks about when he says, Christ is returning again, church. He is returning again. When he returns again, he's going to make all things brand new. No more sin, no more crying, no more, no more death, no more pain. The old things will have passed away. Behold, new things will have come. When Christ comes and he takes his place upon the throne here in this world again, he makes all things brand new. There's a future glory that takes place. Like that is the day that he's talking about. And what he's saying here is that you could be certain about that day. You can know that this is coming. If there has been peace made with the Father, you can be certain that God is coming back again and his promises will be true. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, in a, in a moment of an eye, in the blinking of an eye, everything's going to be made new. Everything's going to be different. You're going to get a brand new resurrected body as you sit before him in glory. There's going to be no blemishes, no more pain, no more sin, no more wear and tear. And you're going to be able to sing in joy. Right, where, oh, death is your victory, he says. Where, oh, death is your sting. And they're like, where's the sadness? Where's the pain in this thing? Disease. Where is your finality? Loneliness. Like, where is your bitterness? Disappointment. Failure. Rejection. Where is your devastation? And what he's saying right here is like, when, when you're assured of that day, not just pretty sure that it's going to take place, when you're certain that that day is coming because you know that your God is faithful, like there will be rejoicing in you. I love the way D.A. Carson talks about this, but he's, he's talking about the difficulty of sickness and growing old. And, and he goes, he says, this, he, says he, he, he says, come on now, it's not like I'm suffering from anything that a good resurrection won't fix. <laughs> That's how he talks about it. Isn't that an incredible perspective? He's like, come on now. Let's not act like I'm suffering from anything that a great resurrection won't fix. What an incredible perspective, right? He's just fixated on this hope of future glory. He's going like, I, I know how the story ends. I'm not crushed in despair. Like, I know how this whole thing ends. 
One of the things we did this past week is we introduced Caleb to Lord of the Rings. We were reading some of the, the, the children's stories about it um, and kind of prepping them for this, but love Tolkien and love this storytelling and all the, the parallels with the gospel there. And so we obviously had a lot more time this past week. He's home from school and we're not out and about doing a whole lot of things. And so we decided we were going to start watching The Lord of the Rings. And if you know the movies, it's a pretty intense movie. And we decided, you know what, we'll just we're going to deal with it. He'll, he'll be okay. And uh, we got to movie three. And, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of tension. Spoiler alert right here. Like, movie three, I think that one's my, my, my favorite one. But there's a scene in there. You guys, the spider scene. We know the spider scene. Any arachnophobic people in here, like, terrified of spiders? Who hates spiders in here? There's a scene in there that is every one of your, like, worst nightmares. You know what I'm talking about? And this giant, giant spider, he goes after Frodo, and uh, he attacks him, and he gets him, and it seems like Frodo's dead. And I'm not kidding, like, when that scene comes up, uh, Caleb's going, uh, Frodo's dead? Are you kidding me? Like, he's sitting there lifeless, you know, kind of wrapped up in this, in this web. He's like, this is how it ends? He's like, he's like, Frodo can't die. What are we talking about here? And he's, you can see the tension building and everything like that. And so finally, I jumped in. I was like, buddy, okay, spoiler alert right here. Frodo doesn't die. Right, like, like he actually goes, like he throws the ring into the fire and the enemy is defeated. Like you could be okay, like the enemy is defeated in the end. Church, it's exactly what Paul's saying right here. The enemy is defeated in the end. Like you know how the whole story ends. The ring gets thrown into the fire, right? You, you know how the whole thing ends. It changed his experience of watching that movie. No more fear and anxiety. I'm t- not kidding you. Like as soon as I told him the end, you could see the fear and the anxiety of what was going to take place just dissipate inside of his soul as he began to understand, hey, this, what I'm experiencing and seeing right here is not how it all ends. And it's exactly what Paul's saying right here. When you can be assured of the peace of God that you have with him because of what Christ has done for you. When you walk in that assurance, you can be assured of the future hope and you don't have to let fear and you don't have to let insecurity and anxiety take over. Like there's a rejoicing that can take place inside of your soul as that assurance wells up and you're filled with the joy of the Lord this day. Tim Stone, um, I was thinking of Tim Stone a lot this past week. Uh, if you're newer to the church, Tim Stone was a long time faithful member here who passed away a few years back after a long, long battle with spina, bif- spina bifida. It's a hard one to say, but um, one of the things you knew about Tim, he would, he would always come around in his wheelchair here at the church, and the man was just full of joy. He wanted to be a greeter all the time and welcome people into the church building. But I'll never forget, like this was Tim, no matter what was going on in his life, unbelievably filled with joy. And I remember going to the hospital with um, Brian Radabaugh a number of times just before major surgeries would come up for him. And I remember this one time, it was a major surgery where he was uh, getting his large toe amputated. And uh, it was one of the bigger ones there. And um, not bigger toes, bigger surgeries. But uh, we came into the hospital and, uh, you know, I'm expecting a lot of, hey, this is a sad thing, right? This is a very, very sad and heavy thing. I remember coming in there and it was just not how Tim was. He was just, um, he was full of joy. He's laughing and joking and stuff. And he's actually asking to pray with the nurses for the nurses before he goes into surgery. And I was like, Tim, what's, and finally they all kind of leave the room. And I was like, how are you, how are you processing? And he's, he's like, man, he's like, I'm telling you what, I've been picturing this day. He's like, I have no fear but going into the surgery. He's like, I've been picturing the day that I stand before Jesus and my entire body is healed before him every day of my life. 
Like, I've been so, I can't, I'm not afraid of death. He's had so many surgeries, so many different things. And he's like, I'm not afraid of this thing. He's like, I cannot wait for the day I stand before him. My body is totally healed. I, he, I, there's no more brokenness in my body. He's made me brand new. I am longing for this day. And he is filled with joy in that day. That is what he is saying right here. There is a joy that you can grab hold of today when you are assured of what's taking place in the future. And if you are in Jesus Christ, you've come to him in faith. You don't have to cling to the insecurity of, hey, am I good enough? Have I done it all right well enough? Like you can cling to the assurity there of uh, of that you are righteous before a holy God because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so he keeps going here. And he says it's not only that. He says says, we can rejoice now being fully assured of the glory in the end. But then he continues. He says not only that. We can rejoice right now in our sufferings. In other words, like it's not just when things are good, but you and I are able to rejoice right now when things are really, really bad. You can be filled, you can grab hold of this joy and the assurance of what's still to come, not only because of that, but he says, hey, there's a, there's a purpose that you can grab hold of right now of what God is doing in the middle of your suffering. You can be assured of this. The God who was intentional back then and the sending of his son Jesus to make peace, peace between you and the Father, that God is still intentional in your sufferings today. And he's saying there's a joy you can grab in that. Like, you can know this. And he keeps going, and he says, like, if the hope of his glory wasn't good enough to satisfy you in the middle of the difficulties today, he says this, know this, meaning be assured of the fact that this, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, apart from the number of ways that God may redeem a broken situation, apart from the number of ways that he may turn evil things, evil times, into good in the end, apart from the things that he may be doing redemptively out there, God wants to do something brand new and something specific. There's a chain reaction of redemptive work that he wants to do in you. And what he's saying right here is that he wants to do it in your suffering. There's purpose in your suffering. There's purpose in these difficult days. And he's saying, like, I'm not doing it in the peace times. I'm not doing it like when everything's under control, when my calendar perfectly works out, when I was able to plan every detail of my life, every detail of the month. When I can always plan the school calendar or anything like that, it's, it's not when it's easy to rejoice or it's easy to serve or it's easy to give. Not in years like 2019. He's saying, no, no, no. I want to do this in 2020. I want to do this in 2021 when there's a giant winter storm coming through on top of a pandemic, on top of economic collapse, on top of, uh, of, of cultural uncertainty, on top of schools closing and an unstable economy. It's times like this when the pipes burst and houses flood with water. It's when the electricity's out, there's, and, and, and you don't know what, you're freezing, it's 20 degrees inside your house. When families are stressed because schools are closed and everyone's home all the time. When the unplanned bills keep piling up, and that electric bill wasn't what you expected. It's when the market crashes, and so does your retirement. It's when injustice strikes, and your story isn't believed by people around you. It's when the diagnosis comes back, and it's not what you wanted to hear. It's when the kids begin to wander or your spouse disconnects emotionally or maybe they just walk right out the door or the companionship that you've been longing for, praying for, asking for, hoping for, it never, ever comes. Like church, like this is what, these are the times that he wants to produce in you some of the most beautiful things in the world, things like endurance, things like a beautiful godly character and hope 
And what he's saying right here is he uses these times, these are unique and special times that he wants to forge that beautiful thing inside of you. And there's a sense in which you can understand the vision of what God is doing in these things, and you can rejoice. You can be full of joy understanding the things that he's doing in the middle of these seasons. I heard a pastor talk about a prayer that he regretted praying about 10 years ago, but he was brand new to his pastoral role. And um, for some reason, he started praying, Lord, teach me to walk closer with you by showing me how to suffer well. And he goes, at the time, hey, I'm just thinking about the normal difficulties of transition coming into a new place. And I was just kind of thinking about normal things like that. And he goes, uh, he goes in many ways, I, I wish I never prayed that prayer at all. I'd never inform her. I'd never tell anybody to, I never advise anybody to pray that prayer or anything like that. He goes, but the, because the next year of my life, it was the hardest year of my life. He goes, a close friend of mine died of leukemia. My wife and I lost our daughter. And he goes, for months, like, we were in the hospital more often than we were in our home. And he goes, I hated that season of life. I absolutely hated it. It took me years for, to ever even talk about it. But what I understood was that God was with me the entire time. He walked with me hand in hand the entire time. And on the back end of that experience, I learned what Paul was saying right here, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces godly character. Character produces hope. It was the most painful and the most beautiful lesson that I ever learned. I heard it said about, a, about suffering that it's like the cold in a believer's life that triggers the heater of your faith to turn on. And you guys maybe experienced that this past week, but you kind of, it's like the cold uh, in a believer's life that triggers the heater of your faith to turn on. You saw this in your home maybe as, as the temperatures began to dip, and if you did have power, it gets to a certain point, and that tells the heater it's time to come on to balance everything out so that people can remain inside and they can be doing okay. And he's like, this is what suffering is. It, it, it's, that, it's that cold that comes in, and, and uh, this is how faith works. He says it's the cold that comes in. It, it, it makes your faith kick in, and make you, it makes you lean on the assurances of God uh, that you've never had to lean on before. And he says, this is what it does. It, it makes you desperate, and it makes you say, hey, there's something not right here. You need to be leaning on these assurances that you've never had to lean on before. I'm thinking of Corey Ten Boone. Uh, the great, the, the, really, the, the Christian hero, famous Nazi concentration camp survivor, when she said this, she goes, I never really knew God was all I needed until he was all I ever had. You've heard that quote before? I mean, it's exactly what he's saying. Like, I never really knew God was all I ever needed until he was all I ever had. I mean, Martin Luther said the exact same thing during the Protestant Reformation. Can you imagine the amount of pain and, and suffering and difficulty that you experienced that? Or even King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. But he says, back in the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said this. He goes, I credit the devil, the pope, and all of my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of God's word. Through the devil's raging, they have turned me into a pretty good preacher. <laughs> Isn't that good? They've driven me into gospel depths I never would have otherwise reached. Like, this is what Paul's talking about right here. He's saying, hey, he said, this is, these are the times. These are the times that it feels like he's absent. It feels like he's far away. It feels like the vengeful wrath of God against you. No, 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 no. These are the times that God comes into these places, and he forges endurance and character and a brand new hope, and he does it in the fires of suffering. Someone once asked Richard Wormbrand, another um, hero of the faith for me personally, but he is the famous Romanian pastor way back in the day, spent 14 years in a communist prison suffering for his faith. He wrote the book Tortured for Christ. There's a movie written about it recently. He went on after he was released uh, to create Voice of the Martyrs, an incredible ministry. 
But, but years after that, like, he was in an interview, and somebody came in, they asked him, they said, Richard, like, how in the world did you make it through all of those years? Not only faith intact, but you're, you're thriving, brother. Like, you're out there sharing the gospel, and you're like, you have hope. You're rejoicing. There's a genuine joy inside of your soul. How in the world did you make it uh, in the middle of that time? And I love his answer. He says this. He says, my pain and my difficulty didn't start overnight. He goes, for years, God has been teaching me to rejoice in much smaller difficulties. And so I just kept doing what, what I, so I just kept doing that when I got to prison. Isn't that good? In other words, like God has been teaching me his faithfulness in so many other smaller fires. I just kept doing what I'd always been doing when it got harder in the prisons. And church, some of you need to hear that today because you may not be in the prisons of persecution right now. What you're dealing with right now, it may not be that, but he may be preparing you for a larger mission field, a larger influence, or something different in the end. And you may be in these smaller fires of suffering right here, but like this is what he's saying right here. A fruitful and an effective faith, one that's going to be fruitful and effective in, in passing on the faith from one generation to the next, be it in your family or be it in your church or in your community or among your friends. Like that kind of enduring faith is forged in the fires of a much smaller suffering. And there's a sense in which we can understand that vision of what he's doing and we can be full of that joy and we, we, we can rejoice in the knowledge that that God who is intentional that came to make peace with us in Jesus, he's still intentional right now, even though you're feeling the heat. I mean, Paul's going to continue. He's going to say, look, it produces endurance and endurance produces proven character. And I'm going to tell you, like, proven character is so much better than endurance. Endurance is making it until the end. Right? It's continuing to keep going when you don't want to keep going. A proven character is that beautiful thing that he forges inside of you. It is that thing that determines what you will do, what you will think, what you will feel, or what you will say when no one else is around. Like That's what character is. It's that thing that's, like, that's actually pure. It, it's authentic and it's real inside of you. It's what John Wooden would always preach to his players when he told them, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is who you really are while your reputation is merely what other people think you are. Like, like, that's what he wants to produce in you. This is what he wants to create inside of you. I've heard it said about character, it's the one thing that will allow your spouse to sleep well at night when you're out on a work trip, or you're out with the boys, or you're out with the girls, and there's no one else around you. There's no accountability or anything like that. This is the one thing that's going to allow your spouse or your loved one to sleep well at night. It's faithfulness over time, regardless of who's watching. Like, this is what it is. And it's a thing that we all long for in our leaders. We long for in our loved ones and our community around us here. And it's the one thing that we often neglect in ourselves because it often involves pain and enduring through that pain and looking to God in the middle of these difficult times. Peter's going to say that, that, uh, that this character is shaped in much the same way that we refine gold today. He says this in, in, in chapter 1, verse 7, but he says, When you suffer, church, your faith which is more precious than gold, is being refined so that it will result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. In other words, like there's purpose in the fire. Like, there's purpose in the fire. The point of the fire is to bring about a more beautiful and purified faith, one that's going to be glorifying and honoring to Jesus Christ in the end. Like that's how the refinement process works. Like that you take a bar of gold or coins or whatever form it may be, and maybe it's jewelry or something like that, and you come and you bring it to the fire, and the fire melts it all down, and all the impurities begin to burn away. And what's left behind is what's pure and beautiful in the end. Church, there's purpose in the fire. There's purpose in the fire. Like There's a point to what's going on around you today, this heat that you may be feeling today. There's beauty and there's goodness in the fire. 
It's what Hebrews talks about is the discipline of God. And the author of Hebrews is going to say this. He's going to say, the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, like a father or to like a mother to his children that he loves. They discipline him. Like, not just because it's fun, not because it's, it's punitive or anything like that. Like, we discipline the one that we love. In other words, if you are feeling a bit of the heat today, it's not because he's run away from you or necessarily that he's angry with you or anything like that. It's because he loves you and he wants your faith to flourish in the long run. He continues in verse 7 and he says, it's because of discipline that you're able to endure. In other words, if you did not have the heat of the fire, you would not have this godly character that I want to produce in you. And so again, church, this is one of these things. I want to bring us back to verse 1 right here. Because, and I want you to be assured that right now, if you are experiencing the heat of the fire, like if you are in Christ, you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be assured of that. Because in the middle of the heat, in the middle of the fire, it feels the complete opposite. It feels like it's punitive. It feels like he's throwing coals upon your head. It feels like he's that angry, wrathful father. And what he's saying right here is he's not the angry and the abusive father who takes joy and pain. It's a different disposition. There's a, brand, there's, a loving, uh, there's a loving compassion that's involved in this thing, meaning if you are in Christ, your suffering today is not his condemnation and rage. And he assures us of this. So he says in chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ is set you free from the law of sin and death. Christ is our propitiation. His wrath against sin has been totally satisfied. It has been totally satisfied. Hebrews assures us that our sins, all of our sins, past, present, and future, they've all been paid for once and for all. Meaning, if he were to keep punishing you over and over and over again for your sins, that would be called double jeopardy. And that would not be from a just and holy God. Like, that's not how the fire works, and it's not how the fire is. It's not a wrathful tit-for-tat kind of a judgment on the believer. It is an act of love from a perfectly loving, holy, and just Heavenly Father whose entire goal is to build a faithful and enduring character in us that will rejoice in hope till the end. And so, church, we have to be assured of his love. We have to be assured of his purposes in the middle of the fire. And we can see this all throughout Scripture. Like sometimes what this means is that the fires that you may be feeling right now, all it is is going to be, it's going to be God stepping back and saying, okay, you know what? You want to run? You want to come? You want to go your own way? I'm going to step back and I'm going to allow you to experience some of the consequences that have already baked into this whole thing. Sometimes that is what we're dealing with. It's, it's the consequences of running from him or doing our own thing. Like you have an unexpected pregnancy outside of marriage. Like that's not necessarily God's judgment or condemnation. It's biology, which God created. And he, he's worked it into the fabric of life. Like you cheat on a, on a friend, you, have a, you lie to your parents or something like that. Like trust is gonna be destroyed and it's gonna be hard to reestablish that trust. It could explain some of the tensions that may be there. If you're self-absorbed, you're gonna, you, it's very likely you're going you're gonna to alienate other people. You may alienate kids. They may want to run and rebel. If you minimize a porn addiction, don't be, don't be surprised by being dissatisfied by the real thing at home. And these are consequences. This is the way that he's worked things into the fabric. Like sometimes he steps back and says, you know what? You want to run that way, I'm going to let you experience some of this thing. You keep running from him, and repentance has no part, no part of your language whatsoever. You never deal with it. You never come before the Lord and say, Father, I'm laying down my sin and I'm turning from these things. Hebrews is going to tell us your heart is going to grow hard towards him. It's going to grow numb. It's going to be cold. This is what he does. This is why he says, uh, let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you are going to be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. Like This is what takes place if you do not walk in repentance all the time. We, we get hard towards him. It's not that he turns towards us. He runs away. 
we become numb towards him. And so sometimes the fires that you may be feeling are simply the natural consequences of saying, you know what, I'm going to run. I'm going to go do my own thing. And sometimes he's going to let you experience the sting of these consequences. But the whole point of it all is that you're going to feel the sting of the heat. And you're going to be reminded, hey, things are not as they should be. And I'm going to turn. And I'm going to run back into my designer's arms. And I'm going to be safe and secure in his hands. I'm going to repent and I'm going to come back to him. This is what he wants to do. Endurance, character, and hope in the end. And so sometimes it's just him stepping back and saying, hey, consequences he can have his way. Other times he needs to get a little bit more intentional. And other times he needs to come back, and not that he's not intentional, let me take that one back, but other times it's going to come in and something needs to break in order to get our attention. And some of us know this all too well because you may have the the personality or the experiences to where you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to listen, I'm going to grab that hot stove myself and see 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 what's really true here. Some of us have that personality where we're kind of going, you know what, I'm never going to turn until I finally bottom out. And I realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, like there is no hope in my own running here. And so sometimes something needs to break in order to get our attention. You know, I remember a few years back, I was in Israel. And uh, I was on this trip out there check, checking out the land. It was an absolutely incredible trip. But um, in one of the locations we went to, pretty much everywhere you go, you, you see shepherds and you see sheep all over the place. And it's really kind of cool to see the metaphors of shepherd and sheep throughout Scripture play out right in front of your eyes, but you see them everywhere. There's shepherds, there's sheep, there's fields. I remember one of these days, we're standing on this mountain, we're kind of overlooking this scenery here, and, um, and we're looking down upon a shepherd with a sheep. And our tour guide comes and he says, he says um, you know, sometimes, uh, he tells us a story of kind of what God is doing here, and he says, uh, you know, sometimes shepherds in their love will have a sheep that wants to go and do whatever they want to do. And he goes, sometimes um, shepherds need to go and they need to intentionally break the leg of a wandering sheep so that they can be drawn back into the fold. And it's a really weird thing. He goes, I want to assure you, this is not a shepherd being mean or being, uh, being contentious to his sheep. He goes, it's very, very rare. Sheep typically want to follow along with other sheep. But every now and then, you're going to find a sheep that wants to go and do their own thing. They're going to be that one wandering sheep that runs off and does their own thing. And so what happens is the shepherd's going to go, and in his intentionality and in his love, he's going to go and pursue that one, and every now and then, he may intentionally break that sheep's leg. And we all gasp, and we're all going, how dare you? And he goes, no, 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 this is an act of love, because what takes place is that shepherd then takes that sheep, and he picks him up, and he puts him on his shoulder. And for the next two months, while that leg mends, he's carrying around that sheep everywhere he goes. And in the process, what happens is that sheep learns how to love and trust that shepherd again. And that sheep learns that that shepherd loves that sheep so much that he won't even let him go and do the thing that he wants to go do that's going to lead to a wolf or whatever it may be in the end. And he says in that time, those two to three months, that sheep is coming and he's learning the love of the shepherd in a way that he never experienced before. And church, some of you need to hear that today because you are experiencing breaking at some point in your life. You're feeling it. There's something that's breaking. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's, maybe it's financial. Maybe it's, I don't know what the catastrophe could be, but there may be something that is breaking in your life. And sometimes this is God coming in and saying, I love you so much that I need you to understand. You can depend on me. You can trust me. You can rest safe and secure in my arms again, and you can find that healing in me again. And church, some of us need to understand, like sometimes that is what he's doing in your pain. And this is an opportunity to say, I feel this break. I feel this tension going on. 
And to be able to respond to the love of the good shepherd, which is saying, come home to me, trust me again, love me again, I've got you again, follow me again, I promise you my ways are good for you, and to be able to rest in those arms again. And some of us are there. And what he's saying here is that sometimes, you know, what the heat that you may be feeling, maybe it is just the consequences of, what, of own wandering. Sometimes it is the love of God coming in and saying, hey, something's got to break. You've got to have that idolatry broken in your life. That sin pattern, which is, which is devastating you, it needs to be broken in your life. And then we can sit there and we can respond and we can be assured that this God who came to us while we were wandering, while we were weak, while we were still wandering in our sin, to come and to make peace for us, he's a God who can be trusted. He is the good and holy, loving shepherd. And we can rest safe and secure in his arms right there. So sometimes it's the consequences. Sometimes it's the intentionality. But here it is, church. Sometimes it's simply God coming in the middle of that place and saying, I want you to feel some of this heat so that I can do something much more beautiful and lasting in the end. A little while ago, I was um, reading a story about an ancient Japanese tribe that would shatter a pot on the ground after they made it. And so they would make a brand new pot, right, out of the clay, put all this work. And they'd take this beautiful pot, and they would lift it up, and they would throw it down on the ground, and they'd shatter it on the ground. And then they would come together, and they would take melted gold, and they'd mend this pot together. It's a process called kintsugi. And uh, it, it simply means golden repair. And so they would take this pot and they would throw it down and they smash it and they mold it all back together using melted gold. And what you have in the end is something much more beautiful and much more valuable than anything that you ever would have had in the very beginning. And church, like sometimes, like this is what God is doing. And again, maybe some of you need to hear this one, that this is what God is doing in the middle of your suffering. It is God infusing the gold of his presence into the broken places of your life so that you can be stronger, so that you can have endurance, so that you can be more beautiful and more valuable in the end. And church, some of us need to hear that today. The heat that you are experiencing is God's mercy and his compassion And it is him coming and saying, I want to create something more beautiful, more lasting, more valuable in the end. And he's infusing the gold of his presence into the brokenness of your life today to prove that he is sufficient and he is lasting in the end. Church, I'm telling you, there is purpose in the suffering. There is purpose in the pain. There is absolute purpose there. When you, whether you are in suffering right now or you're, you're, you're protected on this side of things, there is purpose in this thing. And what he is saying is there is a joy that you and I can grab hold of today. When we sit here fully assured of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, there is a joy that you can be filled in today that can overflow and and result in rejoicing in the end today. And what Paul's saying is because you have peace with the Father, the assurance of his love, you can rejoice in the good times and in the bad times. When things are peaceful in 2019 and going really, really well, and when things are really, really difficult and everything is painful in 2020 and 2021, you can grab hold of this joy, the assurance of what God has done for you in Jesus, and you can rejoice. And that is my hope and my prayer for some of us today, for all of us today, that we would be able to stand in the middle of this season, no matter what the thing may be in your life, full of joy, confident that God has made peace with you, and because he has made peace with you, you have an f- assurance of the future hope, and you have an assurance about what he's doing today. Father, we just want to tell you, God, that we love you. We praise you, and we thank you this day. God, I praise you that we don't have to, we don't have to look very far to be assured of your love for us. God, all we need to do is look at the cross. We don't have to look at the circumstances. We don't have to look at what's happening around us, Father. We just get to be reminded that 
because of what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ. God, we have peace with you. We stand before you righteous and clean, holy and beloved. Father, I pray that today someone will be able to stand on that assurance today, that you would fill them with joy. God, that you would give them a song of rejoicing in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, being fully confident that you are in control, that you are trustworthy, more than worthy of the entirety of our being. Father, would you meet somebody in that place, God, and bring about rejoicing today. Father, I'm just thinking about the person who's come in today and maybe something's really broken and they're feeling the breaking taking place. God, would you be compassionate to that person right now? Would you assure them that you're present with them? God, would you mend together their brokenness with a, an infusion of the presence of your, the gold of your presence, Father? I pray that you would do that, that you would make something more lasting, more valuable, more beautiful in the end. Father, we love you, we trust you in this season. We say, come and have your way in us. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Amen and amen.